You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. I mean, I'm a shade room like fanatic, right? <laughs> I live, like, you know, like not, not on watch Wendy Williams, but I love me some shade room stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've seen was Seattle was on the map because of taking black pride, right? When they were asking. So I have to ask right. when, is it, is it about reparations? What does that look like for us? So uh, I wrote notes on this. So and, I'm I'm re- <laughs> and I'm ready for it. We're ready for um, it. Yeah. I think, you know, reparations was kind of the hot topic, right? Um, I think that, um, what we were trying to do, you know, it was the second year that we were holding the event. Um, the first year, it was crickets. No one really had a problem with it. We had um, tons of support. Um, I think the second year, the moment that, uh, you know, uh, Capitol Hill Pride said something about it, it kind of blew up with the, um, the you know, the response um, to their, their letter. And, and I think that really I, when we... Not to cut you off, but um, can we reiterate like what was said in that letter if you don't mind absolutely i think they were just sharing that our that our event was discriminatory um that we were breaking all sorts of laws etc etc um and of course the clapback was epic um (laughs) from i want to say it was the the lgbtq commission um and and you know we couldn't have asked for a better response um, from our community. Shout out to the co-chair at that time, who was Deontay Damper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, it, it's, it's, um, it's a top, it's a conversation that we really want to have with our community. I think that a lot of folks really aren't ready for that conversation. I think ultimately what we were trying to do, um, by really being specific about using the word reparations um, is to highlight the personal responsibility of white folks in structural racism, right? Um, And the benefits that they receive from being the beneficiaries of racism at the intersections of sexuality and and gender identity. Um, You know, I I think that um, one of the criticisms that we were getting um, specifically from our own community in terms of the black community um, was that, you know, we don't agree with what they're doing at the event. There should be, um, we should be focusing on state, uh, state funded reparations, right? Um, and I think that while, you know, expecting or wanting state reparations is a good idea, um, I also think that it completely um, absolves the, the responsibility of individual people, right? So we know that, you know, the government isn't buying houses in the central district um, and, and posting, um, you know, Black Lives Matter signs are, right? We know that, that white folks are, yeah. right? We know that, um, you know, there, there are things that are happening uh, all around our, our city uh, and our state that, um, that folks, specific folks, have personal responsibilities to either buy into um, or, or divest from, right? Mm-hmm. And what we see is that people are buying into those things, which is why, um, you know, some of the, the structural racism and structural oppressions um, continue to be upheld, right? Um, you know, we know that the government isn't alone in voting for, you know, policies that, that disenfranchise BIPOC folks of color and BIPOC trans and queer folks, right? We know that folks are voting, um, folks voting people into office, right? Um, and that we have a decision and a choice when we go to the ballot box 
um, to to you know vote for initiatives and vote for policies that that benefit certain communities or that don't benefit certain communities, right? And so I think that again, one of the things that we really wanted to highlight is that sense of personal responsibility and and the fact that you know queer and trans BIPOC folks often don't get the same type of commercial um, funds that larger pride um, celebrations get, right? Yeah. Um, and that really um, just kind of highlights um, more of um, the racism that, that folks hold, but also the internalized racism um, that folks hold, right? And that we were trying to community fund an event and immediately get accused of, you know, oh, like, what are they doing with that money? Well, we're throwing an event with it, right? right. Um, and we also have a fiscal sponsor. So if folks really cared about the, the answers to their questions, right? Mm -hmm. Hit up the fiscal sponsor, right? right. Um, I think that it takes a lot to throw an event like taking Black Pride and it, and it takes a lot to um, stand on your ideals um, no matter what the backlash that you get. Absolutely. Um, and that's what we chose to do, you know? I think that... Um, it, it was the right thing to do. And if, if not us taking care of our community, then who? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I think that one of the things that I've realized, especially during months like this, right, in the challenges that have came, even watching uh, our community members, well, community members throw, throw those type of stones, right? And I'm just going to look in the camera and say this, you know, um, you can you can also have racial undertones if you are LGBTQIA. Okay. Absolutely. Let's 100%. like you know, it's, it's it's such a hurtful thing, right? Because it's like, well, what about us? Well, wait a minute. Well, it's wild that you say that because the most um gosh, the the most horrible, vitrolic, like horrible things that we heard from people were from white gay men. Mm. Um, which is, which, well, white gay men and um, BIPOC folks with white partners, okay. Um, okay. which is interesting outside of the like. That'll also be another discussion here <laughs> on the show, but we'll talk about that later. Um, you know, outside of the like right wing, like whatever, whatever folks. But um, those are things that really, you know, um, I don't want to say surprised us, but surprise us at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, what is, what is going on right now? Mm -hmm. um, but I think ultimately, you know, um, our hearts are in the right place. We really, you know, deeply care about community. Um, we don't get paid for this work. You know, we, we spend a lot of our whole year planning. Um, and during that planning process, we're doing all of this labor for free. Um, just to bring community this event. And I think that that's something that's like really important to highlight also um, is that like we oftentimes work, um, you know, gosh, I don't know. Me and Ivana are up sometimes till two, three, four in the morning on top of our day jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't get paid for that. So this is all, you know, labor that we're expending just to support and uplift and empower um, our community. And we're back here. Uh, we live in color live at McCall Hall. I'm here. We was gossiping during the, um, the break, <laughs> but I'm here. But I'm here with Rosette Royale, community storyteller extraordinaire. Um, and, you know, I had 
I, I mean, we can go back into the uh, the memorial pathway, right? Because we were just there this past weekend, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we just dealt with this tragedy out there in Colorado yes. with our community members we lost through Club Q. And you were asked to speak. I wish I had a video. Shout out to Jordan, who did some wonderful photography um, throughout that space. But um, you've really set the tone, especially with everyone out there in the midst of the rain, in the midst of the storm. <laughs> you really did. And I just wanted to kind of just get your thoughts on like that. Well, I mean, it's fantastic to be a queer person, a black queer person. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a blessing. Right. I had to learn it was a blessing. Right. Because I've been told that it was one of the worst things in the world to be. Right. That's what some of my family members had told me, right? That's what I read in books, the stories, everyone's gossip, you know, all those things were terrible. But I knew that wasn't true because I grew up outside of DC, right? And so I used to go to clubs, I used to go to tracks and hang out and there were all these black queens, right? And black lesbians, they were fabulous, right? So I really learned from them that there's beauty out here. And so that's what I tried to hold on to took me a while to sort of deal with my internal fears. But once I did, I was like, you know what, I'm here and this is it. And this is me. And unfortunately, that hatred, that stigma, that fear is projected on LGBTQ plus folks, right? And Club Q is just one more terrible example of it. And so when those things happen, I, part of me thinks, but that could be me. That could have been me. Because I've been to all, the, I've been to small bars and places. I've been to bars and discos in big cities. So any of those things that happened there could have been me. Yeah. So I think that's how I think about things. That I think that person is me. You know, that trans woman, that queer kid, that binary youth, right? That uh, older senior, queer, senior, the person who's just come to a LGBT club for the first time, all of them are me. Yeah. And so that we had a vigil at the AMP and I really thought it was a sad but fitting place to be because the AMP, the memorial is about remembering those who have passed. And here we are, here we were sadly joined again, joined together again, talking about people who had passed in a very violent, terrible, terrifying way. Yeah. And it's just the reaction from community members, I feel, um, that although they say, like, oh, this is a tragedy towards gun violence, it's like, no, what well, we've been dealing with genocide in our community towards LGBTQ community members, and let's acknowledge the whole truth, right? Yes. And that goes for community city council representatives, that goes for people in the mayor's departments and governors and people that are writing policies. If we're not in my, in my thoughts, like if we're not intentional about that, we'll forever, there, there'll be constant club cues and in and, and, and spaces of hate where people can just yes. be open to hate. Yes, so. it'll just, it it's on like this terrible cycle of repeat, repeat, repeat. It's like you're kind of waiting for something. And who wants to go through life waiting for tragedy? I'm ready, like, you know, like she said, waiting to exhale, right? Like, <laughs> here right. we are. Yeah. I'm waiting to exhale. Yes, truth. 
<clears throat> so what can we do? What can, can community do? I'm just actually really happy that I'm in this moment in McCall Hall with you. Are, you are a mentor and a dear friend to me. And um, you are a visionary. You've helped bring so many people to life, right? And I'm happy to have you here as a guest to, to so you, you can put together a call, help us put together a call to action. What would that be for a community? Because you do this. Okay, well, first, let me just say that it's, you're very sweet. I just think of myself as a little black queen who was running around, you know, making cakes with my mother and taking tap and jazz lessons. Tapping, you know, dancing around the kitchen and singing little songs. Like, so that's just who I still think of myself as. Um, but one of the things which I also learned was that we need to love each other. And not only do we need to love each other, we need to be vocal that we love each other. Right. And so when I was asked to speak at the memorial, at the vigil the other day for Club Q, I, the thing that I was thinking about was, you know what? tell people that they're loved because that's important you know how do you fight hate love how do you generate love love yourself i know that's right <laughs> right and then you can love other people openly and so my call to action is love i know it can sound so trite and silly we're living in this age where you know we're told about we're so divided that we can never come together that it's just getting worse that our climate is uh, in crisis. And it's, it's true, we are living it with really difficult times, but we need to remember about love. It is such a radical act and it is a radical act for black folks mm -hmm. to love and to be open about loving. Yes. I ultimately ended up probably about five years, five years ago, almost six, had to go through a court co-parenting court case, um, just as far as trying to fight for my rights of being, having my son. Like, you know, I spoke a lot about my kids. Like those are the most important people in my life because I have to continue to show up for them. But that was hard navigating that space by myself, like filling out paperwork, knowing I have to get a copy to the, the defendant and get a copy to the court. Like there's a lot of things navigating that space that we don't know as black men. And like, there are places to help you with that, but those are conversations that we should be having a lot more amongst each other to support. Do you think that there's any conversations? No. I don't, a lot of people are too prideful. Um, that's part of the reason why, you know, I chose to even just show up here. Like my daughter would be like, tell your story, like tell your story. There's a lot more, but it's like, this is just how I feel. Like we should be able to have more conversations. Like Who should be able to? Black men, okay. <laughs> men, like we should be able to cry, not just to our therapist or to, our wife or girlfriend, like there, there should be more outlets we give each other, but we we don't give us that space. Like we got to be able to give ourselves grace to be that, to be vulnerable, to to show up for yourself. Um, I'm I I try to tell my kids they need to go to therapy. I'm in therapy, so like okay, like, so I, let's you know I love me some therapy. <laughs> Shout out to Washington Therapy Fund, but but tell us your th therapy experience. Uh, it's been it's been great. I I started back about five years ago when. Um, me and my son's mom had split and just trying to figure out what I needed because of me navigating spaces out of anger or me feeling like, you know, I, I view things win and lose. Like there's, I don't know the in-between. I don't know the, I didn't really know about emotions, regulated, the regulating emotions or emotional intelligence until 
this year talking about my emotions like no it's more than anger why are you why are you why are you just mad um so i'm learning how to step through the spaces versus just saying all right no whatever is cool or yeah i, I won or like in that space that mural yeah right there mm -hmm. smack dab in the street we're, we're in the midst of everything yeah. right what does that mural mean to you I mean, it means a lot. I mean, I think it is a testament to um, artists and our ability to to speak volumes. You know, um, before we did the mural, you know, obviously we're going through pandemic and quarantine and the entire city is boarded up and everybody is in their houses and we don't know what's going to happen next. Right. So we're in that space. Millions of people are dying. People are losing their family, their friends. They can't touch them. They can't be with them in their final moments. There's no mourning. There's no grieving. There's no nothing. It's just chaos around the world. So that's where we are. And then a black man is murdered by the police. Yeah. So when that happened, I, I went numb. Like I couldn't, I couldn't believe that we were, we were back there after all the shit we had been through. Yeah. This is what the, the, the order of events looks like. Yeah. You know, I always joke that Jesus could come down from the sky and a black man would still get murdered. You know, there is, there is no stopping whatever that is, you know? So when that happened, I was like, Okay, I spent maybe like four or so days just couldn't move, couldn't talk, couldn't eat, couldn't think. And then the shit started. So I live right by the, the courthouse. So that's where all the protests initially began. Yeah. So I was hearing the choppers. I was hearing the flash grenades. I was hearing the bombs. I was hearing the screaming, you know, outside of my outside of my window on a constant basis. You know, I'm seeing on the news and I'm seeing through Omari's feed and through Futures Crystal's feeds what's going on on Capitol Hill and how police are treating regular people, you know, because of because of what's what's happening. And a fire was lit. You know, I was like, OK, we got to do something. You know, I'm not I'm not a protester. I'm not a I'm not a in the streets on the front lines kind of person. But I am an artist, you know, and I was like, OK, if I can't if I can't put my energy there, I'm going to put it here. And so that opportunity, you know, we, we call it VMC, we call it divine timing, yeah. you know, what that was because everything was not, it wasn't supposed to happen the way that it did. Right. It was 48 hour effort that led to that mural being created. And a lot of people on the ground in the chop chaz, you know, helped us out to clear that area, to actually clear the space for that to exist. And all the, all the artists that I called answered, you know, so there was two really big things that, could have very well not happened yeah. that actually did that led to that, to that mural being created. So, yeah. And then it was seen around the world. Yeah. Seen around the world. Yeah. And Erica Badu says this quote, I'm an artist mm -hmm. and I am sensitive about my ish. Yes, right? ma'am. So I, I would have to ask, right. Mm -hmm. There was like, I remember Mm -hmm. There was just a point where they were trying to get rid of the art. Yes. First of all, um, screw whoever was trying to get rid of the art. Yeah. But in the meantime, yeah. like, can you walk me through that process? Because it's like they reached out to someone else. Yes. About it. Yeah. And I mean, I know, I know this person, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, I, can you walk me through what that, what that, how that made you feel, right? Yeah. Because I know 
and I've heard this before that this happens to black women mm -hmm. artists mm -hmm. constantly. Yeah. Um, if you yeah, could. for sure. For sure. Um, about a month later after the original mural was created, you know, um, well, after it was created and it was seen around the world, then the city reached out to us because they knew, I think they knew that they couldn't just get rid of it without causing another uproar, right. right? Because of the scale, because of what it said, because of where it was, they couldn't just buff it like they tried to buff everything else. You know, they they literally scored the street of all of that art that was, that happened on in the Chop Chaz once they swept it. You know, our mural was the only thing that existed for a while. Um, so we were in conversation with them and somehow another person got through the chain of command and got permission to clean our mural. Um, I got a call the morning it was happening that it was taking place. And I was like, nobody on our team is on Capitol Hill. So who could possibly yeah. <laughs> be working on this mural? So I go up there and sure enough, it was a person in community that we know that knows us, that has our phone numbers, yeah. <laughs> you know, could have called, could have said, what's up. Um, but they, they took matters into their own hands and actually ended up doing more harm than good. So it went from us having a conversation with the city around preservation to then having a conversation about removal and then repainting. So that's why there are actually two murals <laughs> instead of just the original one. And the, I think the saddest part about us no longer having the original mural is that one of our artists, Angelina, who did the A in black, actually put her mother's ashes oh, no. in one of the paints. So when it got damaged, that had to get removed. Oh no. Um, so there was a lot of elements like that in that original piece that, you know, are no longer there. They're with, they're with us in spirit, obviously, but they're not physically there. Yeah. Um, so we repainted the mural and we actually have a contract with the city. Now we repaint it every year for the next five years. Okay. And it is officially a landmark um, here in Seattle. So Y'all see anybody touching yeah. our ish. Yeah. That ain't so you call, right? Yeah. <laughs> Real talk. Um, <laughs> but, but that's amazing. Yeah. Like at the, like, for you to go through mm -hmm. that pandemic mm -hmm. and choose to, you could have went outward, right? Yeah. And just went inward with your work and supportive community members yeah. and partners alike, right? Yeah. yeah. Finding your truth. Mm -hmm. And then also like, I think that the situation, this is just my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. That situation, especially with what's happening to the mural, happened to the mural kind of happened, right? To lead you to find like, the art yeah. of the matter, right? Real, real, real So talk. can we talk about how you started? Working with Converge. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, that that mural is, and I, I, like, I think I can speak for everybody in, in Vivid Matter Collective. Vivid Matter Collective is the artist who created the mural. So there's 16 of us, and we've been working together ever since. We're coming up on year three now. We actually just had a meeting today and, you know, still going strong. So that, the gift that keeps on giving. But, you know, we all, you know, talk about how, much of a gift that the mural has actually been. You know, we did this in two days and here we are almost three years later, still reaping the benefits of that effort. Um, and one of the benefits that I received is actually getting to, to work with, with Omari. And when we were actually on the scene in the midst of Chop Chaz, he was one of the, you know, journalists, one of the media people who was actually on the ground. So he did a lot of correspondence for a lot of national, you know, um, publications. And so he actually interviewed me at the mural about the effort. And so that's how Omari and I met was actually at the mural. Um, we had a couple more, you know, interviews over time. And then, you know, there was an idea for a show around artists that Converge wanted to develop. And he called me to host. And the rest is history. 
rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> You've been rocking ever yeah. since. Okay, and we're back. Okay, y'all. I done got on. I done put on the harness. This is, I, I feel naked. My, my breast is showing. I feel comfortable. Can you explain? Should be a little higher. A higher. Can you fix it? Adjust, there adjust it. Because my left eye, I can't see it. Hold on. There we go. You got it. Okay, can you explain you a little good? bit more with the harness? Um, harness is just part of, a big part of leather play. Okay. And the leather lifestyle. Uh, like uh, Cherub was saying earlier, in certain, in like old guard leather, you earn your leather. You have, like, you can't just wear it. It's similar to fraternity colors and okay. letters. Um, but other folks, I mean, as kink has gotten more, more popular, You've seen harnesses used. I have seen this a lot. Yeah, like in fashion, yeah, Sorry, fashion shows. There we go. Right. So yeah, it's becoming it's becoming a casual thing, but like most things, it has its roots. How often do you wear harnesses? Mm, not often, but now more often because of this one that I got. I like that one. Can I touch it? Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. like Lord of the Rings. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's a custom harness that I got from Doghouse Leathers. Shout out, okay. Casey. Um, yeah, it was great. There, we actually, Cherub and I did a shoot with them for these. I harnesses. heard about this because this is Cherub's. Okay, uh, but yeah, it could be mine. You never know. <laughs> Make sure you get. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that should be on their website. So, okay. Yeah. This this is so this is great. So I know we're about to we're gonna get ready to get out of here in a few, but I know y'all have a party coming Saturday, right? Saturday the twenty first of October. Uh, Friday, okay. yeah, Friday the twenty first of October. Come on now. Come on. So it's Friday the twenty first? Yeah, so Friday the twenty first. Look over there. No, this is where we look at them. There we go. We gotta take a step back. Friday, Friday the 21st, um, come check out Pleasure Hole Seattle. We're going to have Freaky Friday. I'm a model. Why are so, you doing that? Yeah. Right, start over. So, <laughs> so Friday the 21st is Freaky Friday at Pleasure Hole. Um, it is a Halloween-themed play party. Um, it's going to be a sexy costume contest. Um, we're going to have demonstrations. We're going to actually do a workshop around multi-scene play, yeah. um, which will multi-play scenes. And what a scene is, is ultimately like intentional play. So say you liked pup play, like a scene would be like you getting into pup space and us actually like going through an experience together in pup space. And so we're going to teach a workshop on how to do that. So if you like bondage or if you like getting spanked, we'll talk about how to put those things together. It's like, oh, I tied you up in little handcuffs and we spanked you and did like a little interrogation. So we're going to have a workshop like that. We're going to have a costume contest. And then there's going to be plenty of opportunity to get to know other people in community who are also kinky, who want to like, explore with you. Right, right. That's the whole point is building community and we want y'all out there. We know that there's more of you. It's okay. And they're gonna find you. <laughs> it's a safe place. It's a safe place. Yeah, but um, so yeah, really, so follow us on Pleasure Hole Seattle, um, P-L-E-A Pleasure <laughs> Hole H-O-L-E Seattle on Instagram, on where we give updates and information. You can also message us there. If you have any questions, like I said, like we really are here for you and your journey. So even if you don't want to go to a party yet. You're not ready to come out in person. People constantly like message us and ask us questions and try to learn more about what the party is. So definitely feel free to do that. Yep. I appreciate y'all so much. I'm sorry. But 
<laughs> but I appreciate Pleasure Hope for coming. I, th- I thank y'all so much for being here. Please send me y'all stuff. Hey, I might be there. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> but in the meantime, please join us next week where we'll be we'll be talking about real estate. Okay. Similar <laughs> <laughs> vein. Well, I won't I be his. I don't. Either way, I want to thank my wonderful guest. I want to thank my director. Here, you're watching. We live in colors. Can y'all get the, the, the circulation? It's cutting off. Yeah, I told you don't wear it for too long. I it's mean, a really Jesus, it's for a small head. Head, big brother. Hold on. Safe word. Safe word. <laughs> safe word. Now, come on. Let's do this now. Oh, I ain't even cut off the camera. Go ahead. <laughs> I think one of the things about your campaign is just like you have, you were kind of like, to me, you just had all a jack of all, you were like the jack of all trades. Like you did different things in community, like from boxing to to spoken word. And it's like, I'm a community person first. You know what I mean? Then comes this politician S, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, what was it like for you after that election? Taking, taking, taking what people will see, other people might see as an L, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, still coming back in and still working with um, the the, the Seattle the People's time. Party. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, you know, I feel like we won in so many ways after that election. Um, no, we did not get the seat, but there was a palpable energy. We had a well over 200 person uh, community listening post to make some next step decisions at this spot in the in the Chinatown International District. And it was so beautiful to have people from every district in our city sitting in circles with each other, mm-hmm. talking about what do we do after this election? Usually when a candidate loses, people don't have any more energy. They're tired or they um, become so disillusioned. But people had a real fire yeah. in them. And that was exciting to be a part of. And honestly, it was humbling to be a part of because it was a constant reminder, this is not about you. Yeah. This is about us. And I feel like that helped... Uh, it was like some sugar to help the medicine go down of the various frustrations, because right after that election, there was like everyone telling me to endorse Carrie Moon and yeah. like you owe it to us. And um, I just didn't feel like I had the relationship with her to make an endorsement where if there was some stuff she was doing, I didn't agree with when she was elected. Right. That I could sit down with her, call her on the phone and be like, hey. Not good. Not cool. <laughs> Let's make it. You got to do differently. And I feel like we owe it to our communities to be responsible with our social capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then we hosted the debate between Jenny and Carrie. And there were 500 people in the room what? at a church on Beacon Hill. And we really got to move forward a community agenda in that moment. And it showed me how powerful we can be when we come together with a shared vision, not a not a party. This wasn't about a party. This was about a shared vision of what our community needs to be and what it can be. And it's not been perfect since then. You know, it, it hasn't perfectly catalyzed. It hasn't, though. But yeah. at the same time, the movement that happened from from when I, I would say at least from 2016 on up since I've been back home and, and hearing back at home, like from community members about what was going on while I was gone, about how we weren't asking for a seat at the table. We were building our own. We were holding people accountable. We were looking at what happened to gentrification and was looking. And yeah, we blamed some of the politician, but there were some politicians that were black that we had to hold accountable for that too, so right? Hard. So it's like all of those things were all the things to lead us up to 2020. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Take a breath. <laughs> we ain't taking no break yet. So <laughs> but I, I, I want you to, if you could, like, walk me through on how, how were you during the chop? I would say the chop era, right? Yeah. And you I know, still, quite frankly, I still think we're going through the chop era. So absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that ended. Yeah. Um, honestly, 2020, the, the end of May, 2020 through the end of that year, reminded me of 2014 uh, when the non-indictment of Darren Wilson came down. And I was in the streets for six weeks while trying to finish law school. I remember studying for evidence at a protest while serving as a legal observer because I felt like the revolution was about to happen. And I was like, why am I going to be in this law school and the revolution's about to happen? Now it didn't. And then 2020 happens. And I will never forget being downtown the day of that first protest and everything that was happening. I mean, it was just, it was both a level of chaos and also community uprising that I had not seen in my lifetime. And I once again thought <laughs> the revolution is about to happen, but in a totally different way. Here we are all afraid of this deadly disease and as black and brown folks, some of the most susceptible to get it and not have access to health care um, and to have to work because many of us are essential workers. There's an economic recession that is happening. There is a racial justice uprising and um, a lot happening around orga workers organizing, something we had not seen since the 1960s. Yes. And so if history told me something, I was like, this is a time to grind. And. In that era, I would sleep at Washington Hall in my office okay. so that I could be available for legal support 24 seven. Um, I was constantly in meetings with people around mutual aid networks that we were building, whether that was grocery support or support to our loved ones in DOC or partnering with families that needed things. Um, and then I was still executive director of creative justice while we were trying to run at the time. My co-director was Aaron Counts. We were trying to run uh, distance virtual programming, which we had never done before. How do you run an arts program virtually? Then during the pandemic, then at the same time, these kids are going through trauma. We're going through trauma. Right. Um, and there was also the, the, the complexity of, I didn't necessarily view myself as like in the chop as much as I viewed the chop as a place many of us would go to know what was happening in the streets. And as the media would have it, as narratives would do, they wanted to create who they thought was the head or was this thing or that was that a lot. thing. And constantly pushing back against right. that of being like, no, this is decentralized. Right. And I don't remember, but Boots, you know who you are. It's going to look at the screen and just bring in Boots back. back. <laughs> <laughs> just rewind it back. But yeah. That was an interesting time. Yeah. Yes, but was. I'll never forget June 3rd when we put out a call on the internet, June 2nd at 11.30 p.m. at night. And then uh, showed up at Cal Anderson at 1 p.m. on June 3rd. And we had our demands, uh, defund SPD, invest in black community, and free all protesters. And 12,000 people showed up overnight to march. And getting to City Hall as people are cheering and chanting. And we were invited in and we were like, cool, come in if we can live stream because this isn't just about us. Right. We need transparency in how this is going down. And then being denied entrance 
on force and having to walk up fifth Mm -hmm. and how everyone just started chanting black lives matter. There was so much power in the streets that it did shake political spaces. And so I never want to deny the power of protesting of economic disruption, but also the importance of that being connected to policy and advocacy and connected to those who are most impacted by a situation. There's been a whole ecosystem of things that have been happening for many, many years um, to make 2020 the year that it was on all sides. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.